what the heart cannot forget. Everything remembers something. The rock, its fiery bed, cooling and fissuring in cracked pieces, the rub of watery fingers along its edge. The cloud remembers being an elephant, camel, giraffe, remembers being a veil over the face of the sun, gathering itself together for the fall. The turtle remembers the sea, sliding over and under its belly, remembers legs like wings, escaping down the sand under the beaks of savage birds. The tree remembers the story of each ring, the years of drought, the floods, the way things came walking slowly towards it long ago. And the skin remembers its scars and the bone aches where it was broken. The feet remember the dance and the arms remember lifting up the child. The heart remembers everything it loved and gave away, everything it lost and found again. And everyone it loved, the heart cannot forget. In November. Outside the house, the wind is howling and the trees are creaking horribly. This is an old story with its old beginning as I lay me down to sleep. But when I wake up, sunlight has taken over the room. You have already made the coffee and the radio brings us music from a confident age. In the paper, bad news is said in distant places. Whatever was bound to happen in my story did not happen. But I know there are rules that cannot be broken. Perhaps a name was changed, a small mistake. Perhaps a woman I do not know is facing the day with the heavy heart that by all rights should have been mine. My son was six days old when same-sex marriage became legal throughout this country. When I heard the news, I was holding him, sitting on my couch, bleary-eyed and so tired. When I heard the news, I started crying, tears mostly from joy, but some from exhaustion too. I was in Tennessee then. Like Michigan, it was one of the last holdouts where same-sex marriage was not yet legal. That was a day of joy. After a few minutes of basking in that joy, I, I spoke to my sleeping son, DeForest, telling him that no matter who he grew up to love, the state would recognize that relationship if he chose to get married. I told him that he would never even remember a time when that was not possible. In his world, same gender loving people would always have the right to marry. And that is true for the littlest ones in our families, in our church, in our community, in our country. 
the babies, the toddlers, the preschoolers will have no memory of the struggle to make same-sex marriage legal. They will never know a time when marriage equality was subject to popular vote. They will never know a time when this right was piecemeal, allowed in some states and not in others. They will hear our stories and look back in wonder, confusion, and amazement that it could ever be that way. So today I have a story from the bad old days, from 2012. <laughs> then I was living in Minnesota. And that November, the people of that state voted on whether to add an amendment to the state constitution to make same-sex marriage illegal or to make it against unconstitutional. Same-sex marriage was already illegal in Minnesota, mind you. There was a law against it, but for some that was not enough, so they wanted to make it extra illegal with a constitutional amendment. I was involved with the Vote No campaign, and I went to trainings in my church and in the community on how to talk to friends and family and did some phone banking. At all of these trainings, the leaders of the campaign emphasized the power of story. There had been dozens of state campaigns around this issue, at this, like this one. Votes on whether same-sex marriage should be legal. And this meant that there had been dozens of chances to study how to best persuade the persuadable voters. To move the undecided voters, we were told not to cite statistics or make logical arguments about fairness or justice. They told us to tell stories. When I was phone banking for the campaign, I called up strangers, and if they were not firm in their position, talked to them about the same-sex couples that I knew. I told them about Laurel and Julie, Jenny and Kirsten, Jim and Ralph, and others. I told love stories about my friends' love for one another and my love for them. I asked my conversation partners about the same gender-loving people in their lives and the love stories they could tell about them. And thousands of other people spoke to friends and family and called up strangers telling these love stories about why marriage matters. And it worked. That election day, just over three years ago, the voters of Minnesota voted no. A ban on same-sex marriage was not added to the state constitution. And this was the first time a proposed ban on same-sex marriage had been defeated by popular vote. That election brought so many people to the polls and the vote, the no vote was so strong that a few months later, the state legislature legalized same-sex marriage in Minnesota. And meanwhile, in Washington, Maryland, and Maine, voters all made same-sex marriage legal on that same election day. And again, this was the first time popular votes had turned out that way. The campaigns in these states were also rooted in storytelling. Stories, not statistics, are what shift opinions. Stories, not argument, argument, not logic, not discourse on fairness, are what made public opinion shift on marriage equality. Stories are powerful. That is what I'm here to tell you today. That is what the winner of the sermon on the topic of your choice at last spring's auction wanted me to tell you today. Stories can be a powerful force for good, Stories can also be dangerous. At the TED Global Conference in July 2009, Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie spoke on the danger of a single story. 
I encourage you to watch the video online if you can. Perhaps you already have. It's been viewed nine million times. She begins her talk by telling about the story she read as a child in Nigeria. The children's books she had were all British or American. Those were the stories she knew. When she began writing stories herself around age seven, all of her stories featured blonde-haired, blue-eyed children who ate apples and played in the snow. <laughs> Never mind that Adichie had has chocolate skin and dark hair, ate mangoes, and had never even seen snow. Because the story she read and the uniformity between them, Adichie formed a single story about literature. Adichie assumed that all stories had to be about white children in northern climates. It was years before she realized she could write stories that reflect her own experience. That's a somewhat humorous example, but the dangers can be serious. Adichie shares that when she came to college in the United States, her roommate did not know what to make of her. She did not fit the roommate's vision of what it meant to be African. Adichie was African and she spoke English. Adichie was African and she knew how to use the stove. The roommate asked to hear Adichie's music and was surprised when it was Mariah Carey, an American pop star. Adichie says, my roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. In this single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way. No possibility of feelings more complex than pity. No possibility of a connection as human equals. When the story we tell about a person, a place, an entire continent is a single story or variations on a single story, we lose the ability to see things as they really are. We make assumptions and ignore new information that does not conform to those assumptions. We become reliant on stereotypes and generalizations. So stories can be forces for good or for evil. As Spider-Man's Uncle Ben says, with great power comes great responsibility. As folk singer Annie DeFranco reminds us, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. So what does this mean for us? In addition to how stories have the potential to shape lives, they can also shape communities. What are the stories we tell about people's church, about Unitarian Universalism? One of the powerful stories we tell about People's Church is the story of Caroline Bartlett Crane. I know some of you can tell this story much better than I, but I will do my best. Caroline Bartlett Crane was the minister of People's Church from 1889 to 1898, and she was a powerhouse. She led the church in founding Michigan's first kindergarten, a vocation, vocational training programs for men and women, a gymnasium for women, a daycare, a cafeteria, and a club for young African Americans in this city. After she left the ministry, she became deeply involved in public health advocacy, which she called municipal housekeeping to make it more acceptable for a woman to be in that role. She led she pushed through legislation on slaughterhouse reform and all kinds of powerful and important work. Her legacy shapes this church to this day in the stories we tell about ourselves and the way we do church. 
this congregation's commitment to social justice and social service carries on her legacy. She led our church in changing its name from First Unitarian Church of Kalamazoo. Think about that acronym that we would have been saddled with. (laughs) I know. (laughs) She led the change to the name People's Church. She wrote the bond of union which every member of this church signs when they join, still today. Her story is a powerful, positive story in our church. Crane was part of a group of women Unitarian ministers known as the Iowa Sisterhood. Most of them served in Iowa and, or in neighboring states. They supported one another in their challenging vocation in a time when women in the ministry were not given a lot of support. Before Crane came to Kalamazoo, she served a church in Sioux Falls, Dakota Territory for about a year. And on the days she wasn't preaching, usually one of her sister clergy filled the pulpit. One Sunday, a male preacher was leading the service in Crane's absence, and a young girl cried out, scandalized, look, Mama, there's a man in that pulpit. This was in 1887. A little girl thought only women could be ministers. That is a powerful story. And that story matters. This congregation has welcomed women ministers. Carolyn Bartlett Crane, Marion Murdoch, Julia Budlong, Minna Budlong, Jill McAllister, Pam Allen Thompson, and now me, for generations. That is a powerful story, a powerfully good story. And even now, many of my Unitarian Universalist female colleagues deal with sexism, sexual harassment, microaggressions, and undermining because of their gender in their churches. I've experienced that in previous churches, and that has not happened here to me even once, which is amazing, so thank you. And I think that is true here, in part because of the powerful stories you tell about women ministers, that you have had so many, that you have remembered them so fondly. And of course, this congregation has been served ably by men. You all know that that people of all genders can be called to religious leadership, and your image of what a minister looks like is not bound by gender. That is a powerful story. And I plan to honor this story and carry it forward at my installation next spring. An installation is the special service and ceremony in Unitarian Universalism that celebrates that the church has called a minister. One of my best friends from seminary, Reverend Megan Lloyd Joyner Clark, is a Unitarian Universalist minister serving our congregation in New Haven, Connecticut. And she is also the great, great, great maybe another great in there, grandniece, of the man who preached Caroline Bartlett Crane's ordination and installation here. So she will preach for this special service, which will happen on Saturday, May 21st, 2016. Mark your calendars. And now a more challenging story, a single story that is dangerous. 
since the merger that founded Unitarian Universalism in the 1960s and before, we have been a denomination made up of many upper-middle-class people, and we have had an upper-middle-class culture. Not, this is not entirely true at every church everywhere, but it is mostly true when you look at us in aggregate. A Pew survey in 2007, and this is the most recent data I could find that lists Unitarians as their own entity and not just lumped in in the other category of religious affiliation, shows that about 40% of Unitarian Universalists in this country have household incomes above $75,000 annually. And the median household income in this country in the year the survey was taken was around $46,000. We have among the highest percentage of upper income families among all the faith groups surveyed. Only Orthodox Christians, Jews, Hindus, Presbyterians, and Episcopalians have a higher percentage of high income families. This is a powerful story about who we are, and it can be a dangerous story if we allow it to be the only story of who we are. Of course, income is not the only indicator of class. Class is about income, but also about expectations, goals, values. The true story is that while upper middle class people are overrepresented in our congregations, there have always been people of all classes, all income levels, all education levels in our congregations. And sometimes we forget this reality. Recently, I was part of an online conversation among Unitarian Universalist ministers about class and this upper middle class assumption in our congregations. We told stories about moments in church life when people did not live up to our highest aspirations about inclusion, our promise to respect the inherent worth and dignity of all people. And these are hard stories. I heard stories of people assuming that everyone in their church had traveled internationally, that everyone had read extensively, that everyone works the day shift, that everyone knows what business casual means. I heard a story of someone praising a fellow congregant's simplicity, that he doesn't own a car, that his, he owns a limited number of things, and they thought it was a voluntary lifestyle choice not realizing that their fellow congregant was living in poverty and a car and more possessions, which is not a financial reality for them. I heard a story about a congregation where people who lose their jobs stop coming because they don't think they will be accepted if they don't have an identity based in work, if they can't contribute as much financially. And this is the story that I offered. When I was in my 20s, I worked as a at a congregation as their youth ministries coordinator. And at least once a month, I had this conversation with a member of the church. The member would come up to me really friendly and say, I'm so glad you're here. It's so nice to have young people in this church. And I would respond with, thanks, I'm so glad to be here. And you know, there's a community college a mile from this church. So if you wanted to start an outreach program or a campus ministry, I'm sure you could bring in a lot more people my age. And every time the person responded, but Unitarians don't go to community college. <laughs> yeah, I know. It breaks my heart. Not only was that attitude keeping that church from reaching out to people who might be longing for Unitarian Universalism, it drove the people away in the church who did go to that community college 
includes, including several of the bridging youth who enrolled there every single year. That church had formed a single story about who they were. They were all college educated, they had, and they had all gone exclusively to four-year institutions. It wasn't a true story, but they believed it nonetheless. A year ago, I read a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy, the Courage to Create a Politics Worthy of the Human Spirit by white American educator Parker Palmer. And there was one paragraph that has lingered with me ever since. And he writes, there is no such thing as a homogenous white congregation. There are only groups of white people pretending that they have no critical differences among themselves for fear that their community would crumble if they opened their real lives to one another. Why would anyone with a visible difference want to join a group of people who look like each other but cannot embrace their own invisible differences? That's a convicting paragraph. And to be clear, I'm not saying that this unwillingness to name differences is true at People's Church. I'm still new. I'm still figuring you all out and working to understand the culture of this church. But I've spent enough time in Unitarian Universalist congregations and other predominantly white spaces where this is true that I wonder about this place. Are we able to be open about our real lives here? Do we pretend that we are more similar than we actually are? What do we think about our common experience? What do we think are common experiences shared by everyone? And are they really common experiences shared by everyone? I'd love to know your experience of this here. The only single story about Unitarian Universalists that is true is that we are Unitarian Universalists. We are diverse in ways seen and unseen, in ways known and unknown. When we pretend we are one thing, all college educated, all Democrats, all well read, all eating organic, whatever it is, <laughs> we are falling prey to the danger of a single story. Not all of us even drive small cars, which I know as we think about changing the parking lot has come up quite a bit. When we fall prey to that danger of a single story, we are not so different from the roommate who believed that Africans couldn't use the stove. We are telling ourselves and our children that our story is only about one type of person, that there are certain choices that are out of bounds. And while there are certain choices that are out of bounds in Unitarian Universalism, community college is not among them. So may we harness the power of story for the works of love, justice, and inclusion. May we seek out multiple voices so we avoid the danger of a single story. May our church be a place to listen to one another, be real about our lives, and connect across difference. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.